0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples podcast, Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic Young Adults in St. Louis. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, grant us, Lord our God, that we may honor you with all our mind and love everyone in truth of heart. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. By way of introduction, my name is Father Jason Schumer. Uh, I'll be the presenter, the lecturer, for this discipulous course on the liturgy. Um, anybody want to pass these out? Can you pass those around? Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, I grew up in Perryville, Missouri. My home parish is St. Vincent in Perryville. Went to St. Vincent High School, graduated there in 2002, uh, came to college seminary here at Glennon from 02 to '6. Finished philosophy at SLU, and then went to the North American College in Rome. I was ordained a priest in 2010. In 2011, I finished a license in liturgical theology at Santa Croce. Came back to the archdiocese. Um, I served in a variety of roles. Associate pastor for a year. Then I was um, uh, director of liturgy or master's ceremonies at the cathedral. I was teaching adjunct here, two years as director of worship. I oversaw the renovation of the chapel upstairs in spring of 2015. Last year's, I finished a doctorate in Rome. And I'm back now as director of worship and a professor here. So that's what I do. I'm full time here. I live here, uh, teach here, direct the day-to-day life of worship here, teach a variety of liturgy courses, theology of the liturgy, Eucharist, baptism, confirmation, penance, anointing, and burial, divine office. So some of what you're going to get here is a condensed version of things I teach the seminarians. Obviously, what they're taking is a full course. We have five lectures, and some of it's specialized. So, some of the introductory material, especially today, is based off of things that I teach the seminarians, which is based right out of the Catechism. Um, this is a big class today. This this is the course, so that's good that people are interested in this, but. Um, It's going to make questions and discussion more difficult. And we just have to recognize that. So everyone I know has a tidbit or an anecdote from a parish you've been about everything I'm going to say. So we can't share those things. (laughs) All right. I know nothing will surprise me. Nothing will surprise me. I assure you. Um, If I'm lecturing and something is completely unclear, you can raise your hand and ask a question. And I always have the right to defer the question to later or not to answer it if I feel like it's, it's uh, kind of off course, okay? If you have a longer sort of question towards the end of the lecture, if it's there, you can write it down on a piece of paper. I'll read through those and answer them in the next lecture because with 40 or 50 people, it's tough just to do questions. We've got to stay kind of on course. This sort of subject matter, though, does attract a lot of interest when you talk about the liturgy. Um, people have strong opinions about the liturgy. I find that people have strong opinions about the liturgy, but actually, once you scratch the surface, know very little about it. I think that's very true all the time. Perhaps the only only other thing we can compare it to is politics, that people have a lot of strong opinions and really know very little. The liturgy is the same way. And I think one of the things we have to recognize from the outset is that no one in this room is an expert. And I sort of include myself in that, too. I thought I was an expert before I did doctoral studies and really began to research. And then I discovered reading other people who I'm like, this person is an expert. (laughs) They really know a lot. Um, The seminarians still in class ask me questions, and I begin doing research and find entirely new subject matters in the area of the liturgy. So what we're going to do here will not make you an expert. It's it's just really scratching the surface of many different things. And we got to be cautious about the way we approach things as well. Father Romano Cesario, who's a Dominican, teaches uh, at St. John's in Boston. Once said, and I was at lunch with him, he said that the liturgy can become the kingdom of the small-minded. And he explained to me that he's found that oftentimes people will know one or two tidbits about the liturgy, and they will latch onto it, and that is their kingdom. I will die for this issue when in fact they might not know a lot about what they're talking about. The issue may be and probably is a lot more complex than the one or two books they read made them believe it to be. And that's sort of what my own research these last several years has revealed. Um, I went into the project of what I wrote, which is about liturgical reform and development, sort of a hermeneutical study, and discovered that things are not so black and white. It's very complicated and you get into a whole host of issues that don't have easy answers. I find oftentimes in liturgical studies, the scholars that pretend to have easy answers are not being truthful. They're telling you part of the story, and it's much more complicated. Now, there are things that we can say truthfully about the liturgy, and we'll go through some of those today, like what is the liturgy? You know, those types of things that you read in the catechism, that's there. Once we get to issues beyond that, it gets more complicated. So if you look at the handout on the front part of it, um, there's five sessions. So today is sort of going to be, what is the liturgy? Liturgy 101. Um, And I also have to say that I I sent out that uh, survey monkey, or they did it for me, so I could get an idea of where we were coming from. And just so you understand, in this room right now, there are some here who have masters in theology, some who have studied at the Liturgical Institute in Chicago, and others who have not read a book on the liturgy. Now, everyone can be here. You just have to realize this is where we are. So for some of you who have studied some of this, the first couple courses might be a little dry because it's got to be Liturgy 101. Before we can get to difficult issues dealing with liturgical reform and the issues of Vatican II, you have to have the basics. And so that's where we're going to start. So today's Liturgy 101 Next time, we'll talk about liturgical history up to Vatican II, talk about the liturgical movement. Then we'll actually go through the Second Vatican Council, what does the document say, what are the main elements of it, how did the liturgical reform happen. February 19th, uh, is some of the work that I did in my doctorate is about how do we understand that reform historically, theologically, pastorally. And finally, if we stay on course, at February 26th, we will get into some of the more dicey issues of the liturgy today and how we navigate them with what we've seen from before, right? With the theology of the liturgy and so forth. Okay? And I give you some suggested readings there that'll just help you I mean be on pace. Uh, they're all on the internet. You just type in the in-chip it, mediator day for next time and you'll find that document. On February 19th, what I propose to read is seven pages. It's the the presentation I gave of my doctoral thesis, which will provide a summary of this. Rather than have you read whole sections of the thesis, which would bore you, you can just read the summary that I gave at the presentation. OK? Are there any questions about the schedule? No. Okay. No. So we'll, we'll send out the PDF. Oh. And that's, yeah, you can get that. OK? Very good. What else? I think that's it. All right, so let's get started with today's lecture. Hopefully, you read through the Catechism. Some of what we're going to go through today is right out of the Catechism, but of course, I'll expound on it a little more in a greater context. So, the Catechism starts out uh, part two on worship, liturgy, the sacraments, and asks it a very interesting question Why the liturgy? This question would have not been asked by the medieval or ancient mind. Why do you need a liturgy? But with modern philosophy, with the Protestant Reformation this is a serious question the church has to be able to answer. Why do we need a liturgy? Um, You know, when you have people like Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. And so there's this dualism of body and soul. We wonder why do we need ritual? You see this in in many evangelical Protestant churches as well, that there's this this reticence to anything that is ritualistic. Um, and the Catholic Church is criticized for that, and so we have to reflect on what this external rite has to do with us internally. There's a certain study now that's coming up, and you've got to kind of be cautious as you read through the material. It's called Liturgical Anthropology, and if studied from the Catholic viewpoint, anthropology meaning the nature of man, and we study the relationship of rites and liturgy to the human person, you discover very quickly that mankind is naturally ritualistic. We cannot escape it. Our body falls into a rhythm of sleep, night and day. It's, It's built into the cosmos. It's inescapable. And so we are naturally ritualistic. And even beyond that, you see that cultures themselves take on different rituals. And American culture is no exception. The changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is a ritual. People wait to see it. Court proceedings are a ritual. The pregame activities at Bush Stadium, that is a ritual. It happens a certain way every time. The presidential inauguration is a great example of this, a national ritual to the point that in 08, when Barack Obama was given the oath of office the first time, they gave him and he recited the incorrect words And in private, the Chief Justice administered the oath again. The idea that certain words must be said to have a certain effect. It's built into who we are. It's built in to us anthropologically, even before we begin talking about Christianity. When we consider it from the Catholic viewpoint, you realize that, from Genesis, creation is good. Creation is good. And the primary doctrine, as we'll talk about in a bit, of the liturgy is the incarnation. So creation is good, but it's broken. And by the incarnation, by God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, creation is repaired, redeemed, and elevated. Heaven and earth are united. The divine and the human become one. Our faith and our religious practice, then, must be incarnational. It has to be. And God knows this. God knows that we are embodied souls. And so what we do cannot be something that is just interior, nor can it be something that is just exterior, because we are both. And so what we do with our bodies has an effect. You see this already at the beginning in ancient Israel. The Jews are very ritualistic people. Read the book of Leviticus. If you think the general instruction of the Roman Missal is strict, Read the book of Leviticus. There were ritual laws that were laid down that God gave to the people of Israel in order to have a proper sacrifice. God reveals this to his people. And that's precisely why the Judeo-Christian ritual is different than other rituals. We know, and you often hear that, well, other ancient societies, pagan societies, had worship, they had sacrifice. So the question comes up, why are these Jews these Hebrews the chosen people unique what is unique is revelation that God told them how to worship right God revealed himself already in the Old Testament about how to worship and so their worship already is incarnational even before Jesus you have covenants with Adam Noah Moses and David that all have ritual signs that accompany them and in the incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ, that is fulfilled. Human nature that was broken is redeemed and elevated. And we speak about, and the catechism speaks about the economy of salvation. The economy. Which comes from the Greek word, oikonomia, which speaks of taking care of a household. That through the economy of salvation, this revelation of his, his son, God takes care of his household, the people of God, the church. And this happens in the Old Testament. We see God doing this. He sends Jesus, his son, which is the ultimate fulfillment of his care for his people. And that continues to happen today in the liturgy. You go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, um, stand at the the front portico. The door all the way over to the right side is the uh, Jubilee door. The Jubilee doors have different depictions throughout the Old Testament of God caring for his people, the economy of salvation. You get towards the end, you have the scenes of the life of Christ. The very last panel is a priest offering mass because that economy of salvation continues to unfold, the sacramental economy in the liturgy. So why do we have a liturgy? We have a liturgy because we are naturally ritualistic, Because we are incarnational bodies and souls, which is a dualism we have to overcome. We'll talk about, hopefully we'll get there by the end of the lecture, about this struggle for modern man to overcome this dualism. Romano Guardini already in the 20s and 30s wrote about this in the term of liturgical formation. He said the first thing we have to do is get over the body-soul dualism and see that the two are united. That's the first step to a proper offering of the liturgy. So why the liturgy? Because we are body-soul together because of the incarnation. Christ in his incarnation, our faith is incarnational. And because the liturgy forms part of the economy of salvation. Okay. And that's basically what the catechism goes through. So on the back of the the handout on the one side. It has lecture for today's course, and I give you a little outline of the topics we're going to go through. So that was why the liturgy. Now we'll talk about what is the liturgy. As I said, this is the basic stuff. So some of you who have degrees and stuff, you can doze off if you want. So the word liturgy comes from a Greek word, liturgia. And it's adopted out of Roman culture. You'll find many things in the Roman Rite as we go through the history uh, next time. Many of the things are from the Roman culture of the time, including this word, liturgia. And a liturgia, a liturgy, often referred to in ancient Roman culture, the activity of the Roman Senate, of the emperor, that was a liturgy. And it's sort of a compound word from the word laus, which means people, and the word ergon, which means work. So it's the work of the people. The catechism uh, there on your handout number one says this. Quote number one, the word liturgy originally meant public work, or a service in the name of or on behalf of the people. In Christian tradition, it means the participation of the people of God in the work of God. Through the liturgy, Christ, our Redeemer and High Priest, continues the work of our redemption in, with, and through the Church. So I propose there's a double way we have to understand this. It's the work of the people, or it's a public work. The Catechism makes clear that it's primarily the work of God. and So you imagine the Roman Senate, or even our own government, that says, we do the work of the people, right? It's not so much the people working, it's someone working on our behalf. And so in the liturgy, in the church, this is God that works on our behalf. So you have a divine work that's going on, which is the liturgy. Sacrosanum Concilium, which is the document from Vatican II, uh, Article 8 speaks of the heavenly liturgy. And so that heavenly liturgy goes on at all times, and we participate in that in the earthly liturgy. So it's a divine work. God always acts first. Even in spiritual theology, this is the primacy of grace. God's grace always acts first. Before we even can think of converting, God has to place the thought there. God moves first. And so in the liturgy, the divine action has primacy. But it is also a human action. You'll read sometimes people that will say, and will poo-poo this idea of, that people work in the liturgy. Let me tell you. I'm director of worship here. I have a whole team of MCs and sacristans. We do work. So there is something we do. Now in doing it. We participate in a divine work. So God's action is still pri- is primary. So there's a double sense here. There's the action of God. And then as our work. Our response to that action. And what we do in the liturgy. Because the liturgy as being incarnational. Is both human and divine. Both and all the tension you see in liturgical debates, so much of it can be traced back to that. It's human and divine, right? Dogmatic theologians have struggled for two millennia to describe for us in perfect terms the hypostatic union, how God exists in Jesus Christ. Jesus is both man and God. Why should we liturgists have to give you black and white answers, right? This is a human and divine aspect. So, so much of it goes back to that. And even the idea of the liturgy, it is a divine action and it is a human action. So, how do we define the liturgy? And there's been a progress over the last 100 years or so to give a definition to the liturgy. You know, as I said earlier, um, medieval mind, ancient mind, would have never asked why the liturgy. And so the study of the liturgy in itself the rites is actually newer in the church, a few centuries old, a little more than that maybe, because no one asked the questions before and so once the church has to defend this, the way we understand it as a discipline today it's only a few centuries old and so the church over the last century unfolds, what do we mean by the liturgy? The first quote I give you of that is number two on the handout. It's from Mediator Day. This is an encyclical of Pius XII. He wrote it in 1947. Um, It's really one of the first great responses of the magisterium to the liturgical movement. We'll talk about that next time. But this is from that great encyclical of Pius XII. And he defines a liturgy this way. He says, The sacred liturgy is consequently the public worship which our Redeemer as head of the Church renders to the Father, as well as the worship which the community of the faithful renders to its founder and through him to the Heavenly Father. It is, in short, the worship rendered by the mystical body of Christ in its entirety of its head and members. <coughs> I'm getting over a cold, so bear with me. All right. So that's the first go at a definition. So what does he say? He first, he talks a lot about public worship. The liturgy is public worship. Now, later on, in Article 171 of the same encyclical, he talks about the sanctification of man. And we'll see in a bit here, that's the two goals of the liturgy. Worship of God and our sanctification. You go up to the chapel upstairs, written on the organ, it says, Ad gloriam Dei et sanctificationem fidelium. To the glory of God and the sanctification of the faithful. That's the purpose of the liturgy. But, Rightly so, Pius XII emphasizes the glory of God, the worship of God. I here at the seminary am the director of worship, which is the real goal of what liturgy is, not just liturgy of worship. So, moving forward then at Vatican II, the second quote I give you, or number three, from Sacrosan of which is that document from Vatican II, from December of 1963. So it says then, Rightly, then, the liturgy is considered as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. In the liturgy, the sanctification of man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses and is effected in a way which corresponds with each of these signs. In the liturgy, the whole public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, by the head and his members. So you can see the definition continues to expand. Sacrosanum Concilium is very clear to point out both the idea of the glory of God and sanctification. I give you another definition, which is from a theologian. This book, called The Theological Dimensions of the Liturgy, originally in Italian, uh, was written by uh, Cipriano Vagagini. I think it is the best theological synthesis of the liturgy that we have today. Um, it's very Thomistic. It's very clear in its exposition. Sadly, it's not being printed anymore, so you can find it on Amazon for one or $200, I think. But it's fantastic. The book is fantastic. Trust me. So, Vagagini, who would have written this in the 70s and 80s, he says, giving a definition, the liturgy is a complexus of the sensible signs of things sacred, spiritual, invisible, instituted by Christ or by the church, signs which are efficacious, each in its own way, of that which they signified, by which signs God, the Father by appropriation, through Christ the head and priest, and in the presence of the Holy Spirit, sanctifies the church, and the church as a body, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, uniting herself to Christ, her head and priest, through him renders her worship to God, the Father by appropriation. So that's 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 a good definition. Bagagini goes through a whole exposition of how do you define something. It's got to say how it differentiates it from other things. So looking at all these definitions, what do we get? What is essential to a definition of the liturgy? I would say three things. The first, as Bagagini points out, we're dealing with something that communicates through signs. Signs are symbols, okay? because it's incarnational. There's going to be something visible, something you can see, hear, or touch. The second aspect is it has to speak of the purpose of the liturgy, the purpose which is to glorify God and our sanctification, or the work that God does in making us holy. And finally, it is public worship. It's not private. And that distinguishes it from devotions, private devotions, which are also acts of prayer. But for example, the rosary is not the liturgy. It's a devotion. It's encouraged by the church. The Stations of the Cross themselves are not liturgy. It's sort of a paraliturgical thing that happens because there's sort of a ritual that goes with it, but you don't actually find it in a ritual book of the church. The Holy See has not promulgated Stations of the Cross book. There's various editions and things like that. So it's public. I would add to this, though, that because it's public, there's a sense of that it comes from the tradition. The word tradition, from the Latin, traditio, which means it's received. Ratzinger is very strong on this point that the liturgy is not something that dawns upon the minds of man. It's something that is part of their tradition and we receive it. Right? And this is good to remember too because God's action is primary. If we approach the liturgy as something I must do primarily, it's a bad posture with the liturgy. It's something in which we participate and yes, there is something to do. We're not passive. Okay? So that's what I would say are the primary aspects of the definition of the liturgy. Signs, to speak of its purpose, and that it's a public action. Okay? So, as well, and this a question actually came up before the lecture, yes? In regards to the public action, I'm curious, the last that right, but it's still public. Even in Confession, That's considered a public action because it's something promulgated by the church and it's seen to be part of that public action. So even I as a priest, um, if for whatever reason I'm not able to offer Mass with the people and have Mass by myself, that's a public action, meaning it's not just my Mass, right? It's not just private in that sense. It's always a public action. And so we have to have that idea as well that it's something we've received. It's not something I make up or I do or I take to myself, It's part of the church. Now, good question. So when we speak of the liturgy, and the catechism does this and uses the word the liturgy over and over and over again, what sorts of things are we talking about? The first and the most obvious are the seven sacraments. All take place within the context of a ritual. We would add to that as well, the liturgy of the hours, the breviary, or the divine office, whatever you choose to call it. That is a liturgy, as its title indicates. And then we have also what are usually called sacramentals. And let me explain what this word means. Sacramentals, if you get towards the end of section two, the catechism, it groups them into blessings. Consecrations, and exorcisms. Those are sacramentals. Now, a lot of times we hear the word sacramentals, we think of objects. So the sacramentals, as a ritual, often will produce an object. So you bless holy water, you have a sacramental object, which is the water. You bless the rosary, that's a sacramental now, it's been blessed, it's, you know. But we're speaking of rituals here. And this is what we mean when we say the liturgy. Okay? Now, obviously, the supreme form of worship in the church is the Mass. But when the catechism speaks generically of the liturgy, it would include all of these type of rituals. Okay? Another thing to understand and to be careful about in the way we conceptualize the liturgy is the catechism will use the word, the liturgy. We'll talk about the liturgy in terms of these things. But the liturgy, more than being a noun or a thing, is always an action. It's an action. There are liturgical actions. And so a lot of scholars today hesitate to use the word the liturgy, because people have this sort of platonic idea that there is the liturgy. What is this liturgy? Well, there is no liturgy. There is the liturgy. Now, there is the liturgy of heaven, I suppose, but here on earth we have liturgical actions. There are things we do. I can't pick up something and say, here, I have the liturgy. No. The liturgical book is not the liturgy. It provides evidence of the liturgy, and in fact when we study history, that's what we use, the book. But the book isn't the liturgy. The liturgy is an action. That's what makes liturgical history difficult to study because you're studying an action. Actions which took place, most of them, long before YouTube. And so we can't actually see what's done. It's all by hypotheses of what does this book say, and how does it seem to have developed, and this father of the church says this, and it's difficult. So we speak of the liturgy, but we're speaking of an action. right? Actions which take place how? Using signs and symbols, and we'll get there in a bit. Okay. The Catechism also goes through this fact, which is important to remember. Uh, Who celebrates the liturgy? And it uses the Latin term, the Christus totus, the whole Christ, the whole body. Head and members. Sacrosanum Concilium 14, when it speaks of encouraging and active participation among the faithful, says it is our right and duty by reason of our baptism, to be active in the liturgy. It says another place we don't go as a spectator. And we'll talk more about what that means in the context of Vatican II in a couple weeks. So it's the whole body, head and members, priests and people. The church teaches that sort of the preeminent form of the celebration of the liturgy would be the bishop, surrounded by his college of priests with deacons, acolytes, lectors, and the lay faithful, which show forth the fullness of the local church, head and members. But even in your regular parish mass, the priest's head and the body together celebrate the liturgy. There's an offering that takes place. Okay? We all on track so far? Good. All right. So, that's sort of the basics. That's the cliff note version. Um, Now we're going to talk about the divine work of God in the liturgy, and then we're going to talk about the human work, which is the signs and the symbols. So first, the work of God in the liturgy, the work of God which is primary, the divine work. So we'll talk about it in the the sense of each of the three persons of the Trinity. So the Father, God the Father, is the source and the goal of the liturgy. God the Father is the source and the goal of the liturgy. Everything originates from God the Father, and everything in the liturgy is directed back to him. So we have the church, everything comes forth from the Father, and goes back to him. And oftentimes in scholastic theology, this is called the exitus, going forth from, reditus model, which returns back to God. The exitus reditus you'll notice as well that each of these pertain to one of the purposes of the liturgy. So God's action sanctifies and our action returning to God is to give Him glory. Now of the two purposes of the liturgy God's glory our giving glory to God has primacy it's most important. And we give God better glory when we ourselves are sanctified. So they both work towards that same end. Okay? In the Exitus Reditus model. The Catechism also points out how this is also related to a double sense of the word blessing. Today, we're very familiar with the idea that God blesses us, God sanctifies us, and the Mass ends with a blessing, which is a particular invocation for actual grace to be given by God through the priest to the people of the church, okay? But there's also the sense where we bless God. The Latin for blessing is uh, benedictio, or benedicere, you would say in the which means to speak well of. When God speaks well of us, things happen. Grace is given. And when we speak well of God, that's another way to say, we give glory or we praise God. You see this oftentimes in ancient Jewish prayers, the canticle of Zechariah, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, right? Giving blessing to God. And so there's the double sense of the idea of blessing. And so what you have coming forth from the Father is a total self-emptying, which often is used, the Greek word, kenosis, which is a total gift of self. Our goal through the liturgy should be to make a similar total gift of self back to God. Having been sanctified and transformed, we can make that gift back to God to glorify Him. The fullest way in which God pours himself out to us is, how? Through the person of Jesus Christ. And so in this exitus, we really can see Jesus. And the person of Jesus Christ also stands here, in the return. And so in the liturgy, we pray through Christ our Lord. Christ stands in the liturgy, how? As mediator. He mediates. He stands between us and the Father, both as the giver, as the mediation of the Father's blessing, and in our giving glory by offering his sacrifice back to the Father. Christ is a mediator. The document, the encyclical of Pius XII, is called Mediator Dei, the mediator of God, which is Jesus. And Pius XII wanted to draw back to that idea, which is absolutely central to the liturgy. It has to be a balanced interpretation of both the human and the divine, the liturgy is only possible because it is both human and divine. Because Christ was human and divine, he can stand as mediator so we can have true worship or worship in spirit and in truth, as Jesus says in John's gospel. So the primary theological dimension of the liturgy is undoubtedly undoubtedly the mediation of Christ, the incarnation. There's one particular scholar named Jungman, and I think it's probably too broad of a theory, but I do think there's, his intuition is, is correct, that if you look at history, you can see times in which the divinity in the liturgy was emphasized and other times in which the humanity was overemphasized. And both of these extremes should be avoided because the liturgy is both. Christ was both. He was perfectly human and perfectly divine. And so our struggle is always to balance those out. One of the ways that Christ mediates in the liturgy, the primary way, is through the sacraments, which continue the work of Christ in the world, the seven sacraments. In a certain way, we speak of the word sacrament in a broader sense, as a sign which is holy and effective. And so you can conceive that you have God the Father and the sign that's visible reality of God the Father which is holy and effective is the Son, Jesus. And Jesus institutes a sign visible, holy, and effective which is the church and in the church, Christ institutes seven particular rituals which make him present and he acts in every aspect of our lives. So this is sort of the broad sense of the word sacrament. sign, holy and effective. And then we have the seven sacraments. The catechism defines the sacraments. As outward signs, instituted by Christ, and trusted to the church that give grace. Should I write this down? I just don't know what all everyone intends to take notes on. In my seminary classes, they feverishly take notes (laughs) because I quiz them every class period. So you might be thinking, nah, I don't need that. So a sacrament in the seven sacraments is an outward sign. We talked about this as being a very important part of the definition of the liturgy. Outward sign, instituted by Christ. The catechism reminds us that they are entrusted to the church. And they give grace. Grace, which is a participation in divine life. So, by receiving the grace of these sacraments, we participate in the divine life. Yeah. Not necessarily. No. I think this is just the way the Baltimore Catechism is a similar type of definition. You've ever studied that. The catechism is clear to point out that they're entrusted to the church. The difference, by the way, between major difference, one of the major differences between a sacrament and a sacramental, like a blessing or a consecration, is that blessings and consecrations are instituted by the church. Right? The seven sacraments are instituted by Christ. If someone asks you how many sacraments did Christ institute, the answer is all of them. Seven they're given by him okay. outward sign instituted by Christ entrusted to the church that gives grace and so it's entrusted to the church so we have to say that the sacraments are in that sense apostolic that Christ gives them to the church passes them on to the apostles They pass through the church to the successors, successors, successors of the apostles. The church is the guarantor of the sacraments. The Council of Trent affirms this. And so there's that pastoral dimension to them and the way that they're carried out, which Christ entrusted to the apostles and their successors. And because of that, we can be sure that because it is the same church today that Christ founded, that the same Christ acts in the sacraments today. And Christ acts in the sacraments. Okay? Second Vatican Council reminds us that Christ is present in the liturgy, in the minister, the priest, in the word that is proclaimed in the assembly, and in the Eucharistic species most of all. So Christ is acting. Again, God's action is Primary. Okay. Any questions? No one dares to ask. Okay. Yes. So the God, God the Father—that's God the Father—totally empties Himself. We're almost there. We're almost—we're about to go to the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? So we've done the Father and the Son. Now it's important. I mean, the three persons are united. But we can clearly say that it's Christ who is mediator through Christ our Lord, right? Because he is God and man. He bridges the gap between heaven and earth. So the catechism outlines four ways in which the Holy Spirit is active in the liturgy. I would say that if there is a particular area liturgically where the council has developed doctrine in the church that pertains to the liturgy, it is a growth and understanding of the Holy Spirit's role. So this type of idea is still coming clearer. You see it, for example, in the Eucharistic prayers and how the Epiclesis is carried out. If you know what that means, very good. If you don't, don't worry about it but the catechism in this section does outline four ways in which the Holy Spirit acts in the liturgy. The first one is that the Holy Spirit prepares. Prepares. We should understand this in a very broad way. That God has been active in the economy of salvation since creation. The story of the all through the Old Testament, is the story of God's plan, which is a methodical plan. It's not as if this all just worked out for God and he was happy in the end. God had a plan from the beginning. The Holy Spirit prepares. And so we see throughout the Old Testament typology, which is a way of reading the Old Testament which is inherently Catholic, which you you see it in our lectionary all the time. So you see, for example, the precursor to baptism in events like the crossing of the Red Sea, right, passing through the waters. This is the great reading at the Easter Vigil, where they pass through the waters and conquer the Egyptians. This is a type of baptism. You see the Passover of old with the slaughtering of the lamb. Firstborn male lamb without blemish is slaughtered the blood is smeared on the doorposts and the lintel to save the people. Sounds like Jesus. God knew this. This is the Holy Spirit preparing its typology. Now we do say in the liturgy that in the Old Testament they worshipped and experienced God in a shadow. So God was there, but veiled. Now, we have the image. Christ, we're told by St. Paul, is the image of the invisible God. But there's still the reality of heaven in which the image participates and so we live in this time which is already but not yet. The letter to the Hebrews is filled with these types of images of the reality of heaven and how we participate in that in a true sense. It's not that it's not true but we still participate in this heavenly reality via signs and symbols. And you see this in the Old Testament, where they worshipped God in a shadow, they knew God in a shadow. Now in Christ, we have the image, we experience that in the sacraments, pointing to helping us participate in the heavenly liturgy, which is the ultimate reality. So, the first way the Holy Spirit works is prepares. The second way the Holy Spirit works is to recall this is based in the Greek word anamnesis which means remembrance the Holy Spirit recalls recalling in the Jewish sense anamnesis memorial has a very strong sense it's not the way we understand it today that you remember something And in that sense, the recalling is then very closely related to the third part, which is he makes present. Which is the Greek word, epiclesis. So these two are very much related. Because in the Jewish mind, when you recalled or remembered something, you made it present. When Jesus says at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. He wasn't saying later on, just, just sit about and remember what I did. He's saying, no, you'll do it. And this, by the way, is a, a parenthesis. It's another reason why the liturgy is an action. Jesus says, do it. It's something we do, it's an action. He says, do this in remembrance of me, knowing that when they did it, the event would take place again. It would, it would, they'd be there at this, that event, right? It represents it not over and over again, but is presented to us. So the Holy Spirit recalls and makes present. In Eucharistic Prayer 1, after the consecration, it says, as we celebrate the memorial of the Blessed Passion, the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven, the sense of recalling is very strong. We've made it present by recalling it. And so you have the idea of anamnesis and epiclesis together. In the Eucharistic prayer, you have an epiclesis in which the Holy Spirit is invoked upon the gifts of bread and wine and it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that they're transformed into the body and the blood of Christ. One of the things that has developed more strongly since the Second Vatican Council is the priest places his hands over the gifts. This is an epicletic gesture symbolizing we're asking the Holy Spirit to descend upon the gifts, to transform them. So you have the epiclesis over the gifts, and you have the epiclesis, if you listen, after the consecration, over the people. So you have, for example, in Eucharistic Prayer 3, Therefore, O Lord, we humbly implore you, graciously make holy these gifts we have brought to you by consec- for consecration. After the consecration, we say, Grant that we who are nourished by the body and blood of Christ and filled with your Holy Spirit may become one body, one spirit in Christ. So the Holy Spirit, that epiclesis, has a double effect. Transforms the gifts, but unites the church. And that unity strengthens our sanctification. You'll often see that in Sacrosanum Cochilium as well, other documents which speak of the purposes of the liturgy, will mention unity that pertains to our sanctification because as Christians we are not individuals or we are not separated from the community. We worship in a community. So the fourth way the Holy Spirit works is the Holy Spirit unites, as I was just saying. unites primarily through the Eucharist the Holy Spirit is the source of unity in the church we say the Holy Spirit is the source of the indefectibility of the church, that it stays together in one, being one and united so that is the work of God in the liturgy but you'll notice all of that is sort of very abstract. It's true, but it's abstract. When you think of the liturgy, you think of rituals. That's the human aspect of this. So I think it'll be helpful in the last bit of time we have to talk about what is that human aspect. How do we understand the use of signs and symbols in the liturgy? Are there any questions? By the way, as we finish that section, <clears throat> no. You remember in the definition of the liturgy, the primary things is it takes place through signs. Vagagini called it the complexus of signs and symbols of the sensible signs of things sacred. So, what is a sign? I give you the quote there from Saint Augustine, which Vagagini quotes. He said, a sign is a thing which, besides the species it impresses on the senses, leads to the knowledge of something other than itself. Thus, seeing footprints of an animal, you know the animal which made the track has passed this way. Seeing smoke, we know that there is a fire from which it is rising. Hearing the voice of a living being, We know its feelings. Soldiers at the sound of a trumpet know whether they are to advance or retreat or do anything else in battle. That's the definition he gives of a sign. And so a sign, first of all, is an instrument. It's an instrument. an instrument that brings to mind what it symbolizes. And that's all the different things that Augustine goes through. The footprints of the animal. The animal's passed this way. We have a coyote problem here, believe it or not, on the seminary property right now. No kidding. The rector was chasing it with a stick yesterday because <laughs> it was after his dog. So be careful if you walk your dogs around here. Some of the seminarians have ways to take care of it. We're just not sure it's legal. <coughs> so. Anyway, so it's, that, it's a sign. It brings to mind something. It Brings to the cognitive faculty. A sign, therefore, is both distinct from and related to the thing it signifies, right? It's not actually the thing. If the thing actually existed. You wouldn't need a sign the coyote was there, you wouldn't need footprints. It's a coyote. But you see the footprints, then you know it was there. In a given moment, though, a sign is usually better known and more easily perceived than the thing it signifies, right? So if the coyote's not there, the footprints, you wouldn't be thinking about a coyote unless you saw the footprints, and then there's been a coyote here. So the sign functions as a bridge to the thing that it signifies. It reveals it, and in some sense it hides it too, because it doesn't actually, generally in an in a anthropological sense, we'll talk about the liturgy in, in a few moments. But a regular sign doesn't necessarily bring that thing about. So Vagagini distinguishes different types of signs. I give you the little diagram there at the bottom of your sheet says, first of all, there's two types of signs. There are real signs, and there are signs of pure reason. A real sign, he says, there's an actual cause-effect relationship between the sign and what it signifies. He gives the example of fire and smoke. That's a real sign. So the sign of pure reason is something that's just determined freely, and there's really no relationship Other than the fact that you've determined this is it, so you know you'll hear sometimes um, some a loved one has died, and for whatever reason a butterfly reminds you of the loved one. I can see the butterfly and won't think of that, but for you that's a sign of pure reason. So it's not shared among a ton of people, but it does bring that idea about, and you have other things like that as well. You know you. Um, make up with a friend or something after a fight, and something happens. And now every time that thing happens, you think of that event. That's a sign of pure reason. There's no real connection. It just, it's there in your mind. So as he goes further, he distinguishes different types of real signs. In real signs, you have natural signs, which doesn't depend upon our intervention. Examples of this, again, would be smoke and fire. We didn't determine that. That's just the way nature is. Footprints in the animals, that's a real sign. And then you have signs, he says, which are free and determined. So it's a sensible object or gesture or action that is determined freely by man to symbolize something else that is not perceptible to the senses. So like the flag of the United States of America. People across the world see this, and they think of this country. That's a determined sign, right? It's shared by a large group of people, universally recognizable, but it's determined. It was determined this will be the flag, and so it is. Another example of this would be a plus sign, which symbolizes addition. add the two things together. Someone decided at some point this meant add them together. And now when you see that, you do it and don't think anything of it. That's a sign which is free and determined. This thing doesn't have to mean addition. It was just determined to be so. So of the types of signs, which type is the liturgy? The liturgy is a sign which is free and determined. Now, sometimes these signs are drawn from nature, but something's always added to them that is extra. Who is it that determines what the sign means? For some of them, Christ. Particularly in the sacraments. Christ determines these things. Many other things the church does. So the church can say, at this point of the Mass, the priest puts his hands over the gifts This symbolizes the descent of the Holy Spirit. The church can determine that. That's what it means. Sometimes the signs in the liturgy came from nature. Water for baptism symbolizes washing and life. The church appropriates it, or Christ does. It symbolizes the same thing, but in a spiritual sense. And so the natural sign takes on a greater determination by the will of Christ himself. So it's important to understand here that we don't, in this sense, just create the liturgy. Even the signs and symbols the church determines grow up in the church, in the tradition. They grow up in the Old Testament. Some of them are received from there those that Christ give us are part of nature. And in that way, it's it's interesting, some scholars like uh, Louis Bouyer speaks about how even Christ in his humanity limited himself to using things that were part of nature already. The Eucharist, he uses bread and wine, the primary means of nourishment. For healing, he uses oil, which was used commonly in his own day for healing. He just determines something greater for those signs. Liturgical signs, though, are efficacious. Is it efficacious, efficacious. Efficacious. So I said earlier when we talked about the definition of signs. That a sign brings to the mind something else. You see water, and you may think life. In the liturgy, when you use that water, it not only brings that to mind, it causes that to happen. There's a cause and effect relationship in the liturgy as well. So the priest pours that water and says those words, and what the water symbolizes, both first in nature, and then is determined by Christ in the cleansing waters of baptism, it affects that. Something happens. I think this is a major lacuna in the area of cateche- catechesis today to help Catholic lay people understand why the liturgy is important. The liturgy does something, something happens. The liturgy is efficacious. There is a spiritual effect taking place. And Christ has chosen to act this way because he knows we are body-soul composites. We learn by hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling. And so the liturgy gives us all of those things and that experience. So through those things we experience the divine. Part of what's remarkable about the liturgy, if you think about it, is in the end how simple it really is, that that water is poured, those words are spoken, and think of what God does. It's almost scandalous that God would give that grace, the grace of salvation through something so simple, but he knows that what water means to humanity, so he uses it, cleanses and heals, forgives sins. So, there are two ways in which we say the liturgy can be efficacious. These are both Latin words, ex opere operato. This is the first and the most important, which literally means by the work worked, by the action being done, an effect happens. So, in the sacraments, we often talk about that there are two things that exist. Matter and form. Matter would be the material, the thing that's being used. Form would be the words to be said. And when the two are put together, the grace is given ex opere operato, so long as you have the right minister to do them. And for some of the sacraments, you need the proper... um, disposition of the faithful. You can't accidentally baptize an adult person. They have to want to be baptized. You can't run up behind them and baptize them. doesn't work. People ask these questions. So, so for the sacraments, the matter of the Eucharist is bread and wine. The form is those words of institution, repeating the words of Christ. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, in the sacrament of confession, reconciliation. What is the matter of that sacrament? It's contrition. So you have sins and you're sorry for them. That's what the penitent has to bring. The priest recites the words of absolution as the form and the sins are forgiven. So if we go to confession without even simple contrition, nothing happens. But if we go sorry for our sins, even sorry just because we fear hell, that's sufficient, and God forgives the sins in the sacrament. Um, Anointing of the sick, the matter is the anointing with oil, and there's words that go with that. And all the sacraments have these. But the point is, if these two go together, it produces an effect, ex opere operato, an effect in which some of the sacraments, like baptism and confirmation, holy orders, the soul is actually changed, But in all of them, grace is given. Grace is given. It produces an effect. The grace is given ex opere operato. It brings about in an efficacious way what it symbolizes. Question? Yes, the form is always something spoken. Okay? So that's of the sacraments. And we believe is... Catholics, that Christ instituted these things for us. Now, we have to give some caveat to what the form is. These things don't change. The matter, we can't change bread and wine, right? We have to use oil for anointing, water for baptism. The form has some mutability to it. We talk about the signification of the form, meaning the thing that those words signify or what they point to, that doesn't ever change. But um, through history, the prayer of consecrating a bishop has developed. But what it essentially means, it never has. That's given to us by Christ, Pastor the Apostles, okay? The other way in which we say things are efficacious, because there are many rites that we do that are not sacraments, right? All the blessings and things. Is ex opere Operantis Ecclesiae. Which means by the church working, by the church petitioning is basically what that means. Let me back up for a second. There's one other thing I wanted to tell you about this. About the ex opere operato. The, in one of the images that the scholastics like Thomas give for this is they speak of this causality of grace as efficient instrumental cause. In the same way that an author would use a pen to write a book or a typewriter or computer, and that object is the efficient instrumental cause of the book, that's the similar way that God uses the sacraments to cause grace. The grace exists in God, grace is divine life, and to give that God uses the sacraments as an instrument to cause that in humanity. Maybe that's an easier way to think about it. Okay, so then you also have ex opere operantis ecclesiae. So of the church working, of the church petitioning. So you have all these other types of rites like blessings and consecrations, exorcisms. How do those work? They're instituted by the church. Christ didn't tell us this is the formula you use to bless the rosary. Didn't happen. The church develops this blessing and this prayer. But it's still efficacious. We still believe that it, it's effective. It's still efficacious. It's efficacious by what we would call the impetration or the fervent petitioning of the church. We believe that when the church, when the minister fervently petitions God, God acts. When we ask God to bless this water and make it holy, we believe as Catholics that because of what the church is and what Christ has passed on to the ministers of the church, that God acts through that minister and the water is sanctified in some way. Now, I'm not going to get into all the, it's a entire lecture to get into all the ins and outs of what's a blessing and how, what's a consecration and how are they different and what, that's like another like rabbit hole. But we believe that in all these things, that even if they're instituted by the church, Christ responds to our petitioning. For example, the Liturgy of the Hours, if you've ever prayed the breviary, that's an efficacious prayer. When you pray before God, we believe that even a lay person praying that, that there is grace that God offers you through that. That by the church praying in the way magisterium has laid out, there's an effectiveness to that. Ex opere operantis. Another thing that we need to know as well is when we talk about how the sacraments are effective, ex opere operato, that the work is done. So you can have a priest who is a scoundrel offering Mass and the Eucharist is given, right? However, it's a lot better if the priests and the people are not scoundrels because the grace is given, but the grace must be received. God doesn't work against human will. So at Mass, there is a sufficient amount of grace, we're in the state of grace, to overcome all sins and vices, That's what God wants to give in the Eucharist. But God doesn't work against us. If there's barriers there, God doesn't work through it. He respects our free will. I'm convinced that there are many people who have never experienced the effects of sacraments like confirmation, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because of either ignorance of what it was to do for them, but also because were they in a state of grace, we say, to receive that. It's an old guy that I know that when you ask him, how you doing, he says, I'm in a state of grace and that's all that matters. This means living a life of grace and being receptive to the grace of God. So in many ways, the grace is given, but it must be received. I often liken it to, if at Christmas someone gives you the greatest gift you wanted, it's wrapped up. You, thank you. You sit it down and never open it. Well, the gift is given, ex opere operato, the work is done. But unless you open it, the gift isn't ever received. The same thing I think is true in many marriages, that God wants to give an abundant grace to Christian couples to live marriage. And the marriage struggles because the couple needs to find Christ. They need to be living in a state of grace to constantly receive what Christ wants to give them in that sacrament. And so as much as we say and believe that the grace is ex opere operato, we have to be disposed to receive it, right? Remember the exitus reditus I drew up here. The exitus happens in the sacraments. God gives it. We believe in some way, even in the sacramentals, the blessing happens. But does it have any effect? That pertains to us. Do we allow it to sanctify us, to offer glory back to God? He has his knowledge necessary to receive the grace. I think at least some knowledge is because you can't separate the intellect from the will. But I mean, you don't have to have full knowledge of all the effects of the sacrament of confirmation to receive it. I think if a young person is in a state of grace and has some idea of what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that can happen. But that's also something, because confirmation affects the soul, that should unfold through life. There has to be some even nation knowledge there, intellectual understanding there, um, to the amount that the person can be. You baptize a baby, um, that child doesn't have that knowledge yet, but there's an effect that's given. But once the person has the gift of reason, there needs to be some intellectual capacity, simple understanding. You teach a young child you know, who's eight years old that the Eucharist is the body and the blood of Christ. There's nothing more precious than to give a child Holy Communion that has pure faith. Those little kids come into confession, it's like being stoned with popcorn. (laughs) They all tell you the same little things, but they believe they're forgiven. Later on, we begin to doubt that, and it's part of life. But once we've reached the age of reason, there should be some intellect, and there should be, as we grow, some desire to understand what God wants to do as well. Question? Yeah. Uh, so by that reason, can you also living people to receive the sacraments by their
1: mental faculties? So for example, if someone had a severe mental uh, handicap or um could you then you got an argument with the
0: sacraments? I mean certain sacraments you you would, like marriage because you do need a particular ability to consent to marry, or to be ordained as well. You wouldn't hold baptism from them, or even confirmation, because those are necessary for salvation. The Eucharist, you'd have to be prudent, um, so it sort of depends. We, we even say anointing of the sick is reserved for those who are past the age of reason, for a variety of reasons, but um, so it depends. So the sacraments of initiation, usually not, never. I mean, that's bring people into the church. Beyond that, though, you have to be prudent with what the person has the capacity for. Okay? So, that's how we use signs, that's how signs are used in the liturgy. They're efficacious, they're those instruments that not only bring something to mind, but they make it happen in, a vari- in two different ways. So, what are then some of the signs we're talking about? A primary one would be words, language, speech. It's a primary instrument the liturgy employs. What is being said, what is being communicated. So, words. We'd also speak of gestures and postures. And what do those mean? Standing, sitting, kneeling. Those convey different realities. You have other elements and objects like images, icons, sacred vessels, vestments, all of these things have a purpose. Sacred architecture is certainly a language of the liturgy, the signs that it employs. And then throughout the liturgy, the sacraments especially, water, wine, bread, oil, all those variety of things. Some of the more classic uh, types of Signs, you'd have things, a very ancient one. Even light is a sign used every day in morning prayer and evening prayer. You have things, as I said, like water and oil. Light is used particularly two times of the year. Midnight Mass or the Mass at night for Christmas, this whole idea of light. Um, And also at the Easter vigil, the candle itself, the light of Christ. Lumen Christi. And So that's sort of an ancient Um, type of sign or symbol. So, you know, one of the things that we have to be able to do as Christians is, as I said in the beginning, as part of our liturgical formation, see how all this signs and symbols and how they're efficacious does affect us. Some of it is your own study, coming to know what those things mean, what does the sign point to, what is it calling me to give, um, and then seeing that as we do them, there's an effect, and so there's a reciprocity here. The, the liturgy is given to us, we participate in it, we're faithful to it, stand, sit, kneel, pray, the rhythm of prayer, that affects us, but as it sanctifies us then, those words, gestures, and actions become more authentic because they are expressions of what's happening internally. It's part of the beauty of ritual. We're given the same words over and over again. There's an idea of men's concordat voci. The mind conforms to the voice. Normally, you think of something, and then you speak it, hopefully. You think it, and then you speak it. In the liturgy we're given a text that we speak and our minds and hearts by speaking it over and over again day after day are called to conform to what we've spoken. Same thing with the rest of the signs and the symbols of the liturgy. And so the internal and the external go together. To say the liturgy is just an external ritual, pious, I think it's part of the reading I gave you for next time, Pius XII says that that's not true. There's an internal aspect of the liturgy as well. And as we'll see at Vatican II, that's one of the things they wanted to really encourage, that the two come together. Are there any final questions? So that's sort of a Liturgy 101. Sometimes seminarians have told me it's like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, Maybe it's a lot, maybe it bored you, I don't know. the next time, we're going to go through some of the history um, of the Roman Rite, how it develops, how did we get what we have today. It didn't fall from heaven in a missile. It develops over 2,000 years. Um, so we'll go through that, and then we'll get into Vatican II. But this all helps us so that by the fourth and fifth class, we can get into some more difficult stuff, some of the difficult issues.
1: That was awesome. It really was. Uh, So I know we didn't probably, did we do any logistics before we started? Okay. Um, So I'll just first introduce myself. I'm Nick Lee. I'm the director of the Office of Young Adult Ministry. Hopefully everyone met Angela Richard, our coordinator of Young Adult Ministry for the Archdiocese. Um, You're at Kenrick Glennon Seminary. So if this is your first time, uh, I just wanted to welcome. Um, It's a great honor and privilege that we can be here and have these Disciples Institute classes here. Um, so we thank Father and we thank the administration for just opening up uh, not only what is a school, but what is also the seminarian's home. So there's about 125 or so seminarians that live uh, here full-time. So I just wanted to make sure, you know, when we exit this evening, um, walk into the hallways not to uh, be super loud. Probably none of them are sleeping, let's be real. But um, they will be, uh, you know, kind of praying and doing other holy things that seminarians do, right, Father? All the time time they pray. Um, There is a restroom down here on this level, so just for next times, uh, you go out this door right here on the right and you just go all the way down the hallway, uh, men's, women's restrooms. There's other ones on other levels as well. Um, If you have any questions, of course, um, when you're here, just don't hesitate to come back to Angela and I at the back table and ask. I don't think the gate will be closed uh, when we leave, but if it is, just drive up like three feet away from it or two feet away from it and the gate will open. Don't go really, really fast, but the gate will open for you. Um, The door will be unlocked every time we come here for class, but it will lock up at about 8 p.m. Um, So try not to leave anything in here. I'll make sure to get everything out and have it up in the lobby. But if you did leave something ever, just email us. Angela, any other logistical items? Cool. Um, so that's just a quick, uh, maybe one day, I don't know, uh, we could even do like a, everybody have like go up into the chapel or you, you got that planned for any of these five classes? The chapel is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and I hope, uh, everyone gets to, yeah, it's, it's, it's Father Schumer's chapel. And, uh, Father, if we could build in, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes ever, that would be, yeah. So maybe the next class we would Uh, It is a sight to see, and it's actually, it has been Father's baby over the last uh, five years, just a lot of new additions, and Father can share more about that, but again, so this is a house of worship, a house house, um, a house of eating, and of course of studies, so just wanted to kind of give you a quick intro to the seminary on that, Um, and then uh, next, if you have not yet paid, uh, we're not going to shake you down. Don't worry. You can certainly bring payment uh, next time. If pain uh, is at all an issue, don't let it be. Um, we're not having these courses to make money for the Archdiocese. We don't make money <laughs> on these courses. We simply want to give Father a nice honorarium for spending the time to teach us and be with us. and. We also make a nice donation to the seminary. So that's what the payment is for, in case you are wondering. Um, but again, if that's an issue, don't let it be. Um, and then just uh, last few things. Uh, this Saturday is the Catholic Men for Christ Conference, it's the Archdiocese sort of. Uh, I mean, it's an annual conference, but this is sort of the one time uh, each year where all the men and then the women will meet about a month later uh, come together. And it's about a thousand men uh, that meet. So it's this Saturday and we've got flyers. So if you're a man in the room, don't leave tonight uh, without getting a flyer from us. Uh, There'll be four keynote presentations. There'll be a mass, I believe, celebrated by the archbishop. Do you know? Our Bishop So one of the bishops will be celebrating Mass this weekend. So uh, we would love for the men especially, uh, it's just a great way to unite as as a church uh, and really be spiritually formed. The women will have a conference in about a month, and we'll also have flyers for you on that. And then lastly, uh, I think Angela, did you already put these on the table or not? you may or may not be familiar, but we have something called Emmaus groups in the Archdiocese, and these are essentially small group Bible studies. So this is great that we're coming together as 50 young adults um, in a classroom, but uh, if you're looking for an opportunity to grow maybe in a smaller community, uh, we also provide uh, really good resources to do Bible studies or sort of thematic studies. I just want to encourage you, if you're not already signed up for an Emmaus group, I know many, many of you are in here, uh, we'd love to get you plugged into one and link you with some other young adults. We're also having our Emmaus, uh, Emmaus uh, group retreat in about two and a half weeks. But you can't come to the retreat if you're not placed into Emmaus group. So that may, means a little incentive to join. So uh, I think that's it. Ange, any other final logistics? Yeah. We will, of course, be back here next Monday, the week after Unfortunately, this room will be used for another seminary uh, function, so we'll be at the Cardinal Galley Center. I will send out plenty of emails, and you might even get texts from me um, letting you know it will not be in here that night. So, Father, any final final thoughts? Awesome. Father, thank you again for preparing this class, and I'm excited for two, three, four, and five. So, have a good night, y'all.